Coming up today, Apple's controversial new child safety tool, and we look at the rise of office tribes. You're listening to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, Amit Katwala, and joining me today are Natasha Banal. Hello. And Matt Burgess. Hello. This was the week when TikTok was named the most downloaded app of 2020, just beating Facebook Messenger for the crown. In fact, it was the only app in the top five not owned by Facebook and topped the list despite efforts by Donald Trump to ban it last year. This was also the week when Amazon promised to pay damages to people who are affected by dangerous products purchased from independent sellers on its site. From September the 1st, customers can claim up to $1,000 for items that cause them injuries or damage their properties. Third-party products represent over half of the items sold on Amazon. And finally, it was the week when hackers stole $600 million from blockchain site Poly Network. The theft is believed to be one of the largest ever crypto heists. I feel like crypto heist makes it sound a lot more exciting than it actually was, Matt. Is this just some people sat at some computers doing some typing or was there a, a heist element that could make a good long read or a movie? No, this was definitely something, uh, as far as we know, that was all sort of done digitally at the moment. Um, I think that the issue was around there was sort of a vulnerability uh, in the software around some of the sort of like smart blockchain contracts that were being used. Um, So it is something that's all very digital and probably uh, involved no actual uh, sort of money or anything like that. No big like movie scenes, nobody running outside of a company with uh, with loads of dollars or stuff like that. So very much um, one of those that's yeah an online crime. I really like the ones where they like talk through the plan while it's actually going on so it like cuts between the guy talking about the plan as the plan's actually happening and then you only realise at the end that it's actually been happening that whole time brilliant bloody love a heist movie as you'll uh, be aware uh, James isn't here this week which is why I'm hosting so this isn't this isn't a palace coup so don't worry listeners James will be back uh, very soon Um, let's move on to interesting facts Matt Burgess what have you got for us this week I learned something about sea turtles um, and as, and why, what it was was that they can't put their heads inside their shells unlike other turtles. Um, and this is essentially because of how they've evolved. Um, so over the time they've evolved to have flatter, less arched shells. And they also have longer legs and paddles uh, uh, like flippers uh, that basically can't fit inside their shells so um this is obviously not very good if you are a, a sea turtle wanted to try and hide from predators so it doesn't doesn't protect their heads or their flippers so the shell is sort of just a useless artifact like an appendix or i guess it protects the middle bit of the turtle still yeah but essentially sort of yeah some of the most uh important parts of a sea turtle uh, are not protected because there's no way that they can hide them inside their shell at all which is yeah i mean i guess it obviously helps them swim and everything like that but it's not really much use for uh, if they're being attacked by something and uh, want to sort of shell up <laughs> shell, shell up, up. <laughs> um, my story this week is my fact this week is also about evolution so uh, courtesy of matt reynolds i learned that hemp evolved on the indian subcontinent but when the subcontinent hit asia to make the himalayas the hemp that grew in the mountains evolved to contain THC, which is one of the psychoactive elements of cannabis, whereas the hemp from the lowlands stayed as hemp. So THC is thought to be an adaptation to the strength of the sun at higher altitudes, and that's where it originally comes from. And it's just this kind of quirk of 
I guess, plate tectonics and evolution that's created this um, this substance that's now a huge billion dollar industry in, in, in CBD and THC related products. Do you like Let's hemp, move on. Amit? Do I, do I like hemp? Um, yeah, I have mean, you no? ever gone to a hemp field or seen the hemp of the Himalayas? Did we get invited to a hemp field this week? Are you going to yeah, go? Yeah, we did, yeah. <laughs> I'm just wondering whether this is you accepting the invitation by doing all this research. <laughs> I would love to find out more about hemp. Um, we're doing a piece in, in an upcoming issue about the process of making CBD oil, um, which should be really, really interesting because obviously, it, as you, you know, it's, it's kind of exploded in popularity over the last few years. Yeah. Let's uh, go through to our first story of the week, which is about Apple and a raft of new security measures that Apple has introduced that have caused some controversy. At the end of last week, Apple announced a series of new child safety proposals that will start being applied to iOS users in the US when iOS 15 rolls out later this year. But despite the good intentions of these proposals, they have not exactly gone down well. Security researchers say the efforts amount to surveillance and could damage people's privacy. Thousands of experts have signed a letter calling for Apple to pause the changes. Now, there's a lot going on with these new updates, and they're both complex and technical. So we've got the best person to the job to explain it to us. Matt Burgess, what's really going on here? Thank you, Amit. Uh, that's very kind. Um, but yeah, there are essentially sort of three things that Apple has announced earlier this week, and I'm just going to run through them all quickly before we go into some more details. So the first one was Apple's Siri and sort of the search service on its phones will uh, in future be able to tell people how to report child sexual abuse images or videos when they make a request uh, of how to do so. The second is a new parental control feature that can, when used, uh, use machine learning to warn parents that their children, who have to be under 13, uh, if they are sending or being sent sexually explicit images. And the final one of these changes is a new system that will uh, be able to identify when people are uploading already known child sexual abuse material uh, to iCloud photos. This process will be done on a person's phone and uh, only look for existing child sex or sexual abuse material not anything that's new um, and it's the second and the third of these that have caused the most controversy and in particular the third one which is around uploading iCloud photos so before we get into what security researchers say the problem is with this app system Apple's introducing it's probably worth talking about how technology companies find child sexual abuse material that's being shared on their services because it's not as if there's someone sitting there kind of manually going through everything on our iCloud that people are uploading to check for stuff there's an automated system in place right yeah there is so it's a little bit complicated so bear with me a second but it's worth explaining to be able to sort of like get into the context of what apple's doing so at the moment there is a sort of very popular way that technology companies use uh, to find existing child sexual abuse material that's being shared um, so multiple groups around the world which deal in sort of child protection issues and child safety issues, such as the US National Centre for Missing and Exploited Children, commonly known as NECMEC, uh, and the UK's Internet Watch Foundation, they use systems of hashing. This is essentially uh, when they identify child sexual abuse material, it is given a hash, which is a digital fingerprint, really, or uh, a sort of string of code and numbers that sort of can identify that so each piece of content gets one of these hashes and this is most uh, often done through a system uh, which was developed by microsoft which is called photo dna uh, and this system uh, lists these hashes and, and then is a they're able to share the list of hashes with technology companies so they will receive a long list of uh 
identities, uh, which are just strings of numbers for already known uh, images of, and videos of child sexual abuse material. Um, and then these hashes can be used by technology companies to automatically scan files that are uploaded to the web or sent in messages on their services. Um, so they... Facebook, for instance, can use these list of hashes to uh, scan whenever you send a photograph via its messenger service, um, and it will automatically be able to flag if this image is an already known existing piece of child abuse material. And many companies already use this photo DNA system or other systems that are very similar. So Facebook uses it, Gmail uses it, Twitter uses it, Adobe, Reddit, uh, many other companies. I think it goes into the sort of like around 200 companies using this type of technology. And where this uh, scanning takes place is important in regards to what we're talking about with Apple. So within photo DNA and other similar systems, um, the scanning takes place on the company's server. So if you send something through Facebook Messenger, it's scanned when it reaches Facebook systems and before it's received by the contact that you're sending it to. Um, in the past, Apple has said it's used some types of systems like this, but not really been very clear on what it does use. Uh, and it hasn't been clear if it's said that it uses photo DNA. Uh, and researchers that I spoke to around this say that it's essentially sort of a mystery of what Apple does in terms of how it can detect child abuse images and stuff at the moment. So if all the other companies are doing this already, why, what are people so upset? I mean, it seems like Apple's just taking a belated step to follow all these other companies by applying the same hash technology to images being uploaded to iCloud. So how is this different from what the others are doing? Yeah, so Apple has really in the last few years tried to set itself out as a uh out as a company that really cares about people's privacy and that's where one of the sort of big differences in this happens. So it's it says that its systems are a lot more private than other ways that are doing this, but there are quite a few big differences in the overall approach. And one of the biggest differences is where this type of scanning is happening. So while all companies using hashing systems do it on their servers generally, Apple is now saying that it will do some of this checking on people's devices, on their iPhones, on their tablets, um, and it will happen more locally. So the company says that it's using some cryptography to convert hashes into a blind database that's downloaded into somebody's phone. Uh, from there, the hashes um, are uploaded to iCloud. The hashes are compared to photos that are uploaded to iCloud. Uh, and essentially, if there's a match between them, they will um, they will be flagged and Apple will be able to report this to law enforcement or to the police um, and also to NECMEC, which is required to do so by law. Uh, and Apple says that uh, there needs to be a certain number of matches uh, before it will do this reporting process. And all of the data that is encrypted in the process uh, to make sure people can't reverse engineer the system. So really, the big difference is that sort of where this um where this sort of scanning and processing is happening it's happening on your phone uh, rather than necessarily in uh the the cloud systems and the servers of uh, of apple just for listeners NECMEC is the national center for missing and exploited children if you weren't aware of that acronym i certainly wasn't had to had to look that one up when i saw it in the notes um so it does kind of seem like a moot point though right does it really matter where this processing gets done whether it gets done on the phone or on the server surely it just matters that it gets done and that we kind of find the people that are sharing these images and and, you know bring them to justice why is this so controversial 
it is controversial because essentially it's a bit of a slightly odd move. So at the moment, there is no encryption on iCloud, which means that Apple couldn't do this. Uh, that essentially means that Apple could, if it wanted to, do this type of scanning in the same way as all other companies. But for some reason, it's decided not to. Uh, it argues that the process of scanning everything on the server uh, is essentially more privacy invasive uh, than doing it on somebody's phone. Um, so some people speculate that Apple is doing this in this way because it could introduce end-to-end -end encryption for iCloud in the future. Uh, however, the company hasn't confirmed this. But where privacy experts say this approach from Apple is potentially problematic is in the type of surveillance that it allows. Um, so everybody that's sort of uh, commenting on these issues and working on them from the technology companies to law enforcement to child safety groups essentially say that obviously child abuse is, uh, and child sexual abuse material is abhorrent and needs to be removed from the internet and the world at large. But critics say that because this type of scanning from Apple is being done on your phone, which you own, uh, amounts to a type of surveillance. Um, whereas if Apple was doing this on its servers, like other companies, uh, it owns those, it's in charge of them, whereas your phone, you've bought it yourself. Um, but more pressingly, they say that the system could be used to scan for other types of material in the future. They say that this is essentially a slippery slope. So for instance, the head of WhatsApp said that this isn't this is an Apple built and operated surveillance system that could very easily be used to scan private content for anything they or a government decides it wants to control. So they went on to say that countries where iPhones are sold will have different definitions of what is acceptable. Um, so we've already sort of seen this as well. Uh, so for instance, in China, Apple has operated its business model differently to other countries and made more concessions to the government. It's made changes based on demands from the Chinese government to store data locally, for instance. So people question why if the Chinese government turned around and said, can you change these hash lists to include things that we don't think are lawful? So that could be something that is political content that the state doesn't agree with, or it could be um, or other types of material generally that it says are illegal under Chinese laws. Then why would Apple sort of resp uh, not make these changes to the system? And while in many ways, like China is a very sort of extreme example, the UK and India are both being sort of mooted examples where this type of approach could happen politically but with the leaning on the tech companies to do something different. Um, so for instance uh, internet blocking was sort of introduced in the UK a few years ago to uh, stop child sexual abuse material being accessed through certain IP addresses uh, and the systems behind that have since been expanded to block sort of pri uh, block streaming websites that do sort of like um, content that is um, sort of in infringing on sort of piracy issues so uh, around football streaming content that can be banned and blocked at sort of like your internet service provider level um, and Apple has sort of responded by saying that it's only rolling out this system uh, for child sexual abuse material in the US at the moment and it will fight any sort of government uh, pushes that uh, come against it um, whether that's sort of legally binding that's that's tricky to sort of say at this stage but there is precedent with apple fighting against the fbi a few years ago on in, on matters of encryption so it essentially it comes down to sort of like the system could uh be changed at the demands of governments uh but it's apple's word is saying that it won't do this that's where people have got lots of qualms with this system yeah i guess it's interesting that as you say apple has sort of positioned itself as being the privacy focused of the big sort of tech companies the one that is you know, they're running an advertising campaign at the moment, I think that's all about, you know, not letting uh, companies track you around the web and stuff like that. But I guess when it comes into contact with law enforcement, there's 
a kind of grey area and we don't really know how Apple will react if it does get pushed by certain governments. There is one thing that we do know, however, which is that while Apple's system is still being debated, we'll have to wait and see and we'll have to wait and see whether it rolls back the changes that it's outlined. We know that it's not reporting that much child abuse material currently from its services. So uh, each year, NECMAC releases figures on the amount of child abuse material technology companies report to it. They're required to report what they find by law. And these figures are quite startling. So in 2020, Facebook made 20 million reports. Google made 500,000. Dropbox made 20,000. Apple made just 265. And that's partly, I guess, as a result of the fact that it's much more privacy focused. It's got much less oversight over what its users are doing and sharing. But what does it mean for what happens next? Yeah, so the whole area is essentially, it's obviously very complex and very nuanced and like a lot of the reporting we've seen around sort of Apple's um, changes that it announced this week has been sort of quite... um, been muddled in some ways and lots of people have got very different impressions of the three different things that it announced so while it announced the three of them at the same time i don't think it did a particularly good job in doing so and when we look at those numbers that you were just talking about there amit like there's a huge amount of reports that facebook makes to neckback each year um and while this is obviously partly reflective of the content that can be found on facebook it's also because those numbers are also so high because Facebook has essentially spent a lot of money and created a lot of uh, tools to find child sexual abuse material. Um, it, the researchers that I've spoken to uh, recently and in the past have said that Facebook has done more than a lot of other technology companies to find this type of material on its services. Um, and Apple, while it has got a very different business model it's more about selling smartphones and products uh, rather than being a communication service although it does obviously have one of the biggest messaging platforms through iMessage and uh, iCloud is obviously uh, used by millions uh, if not more than a billion people uh, as well so it does have that scale obviously Um, and essentially people have said in the past that Apple hasn't done enough to be doing to be finding child sexual abuse material on its platforms and it should be doing more so this uh, up from one perspective this step what it's announced now is uh, very good and is something that could uh, and is likely to vastly increase the amount of reports that are made by Apple in the next couple of years if it rolls this out but on the other hand the way it's done it has not been particularly uh, has not been particularly effective and there are lots of sort of criticisms and concerns that we started to go through here um, so uh, some of the researchers that I spoke to speak to have said that Apple's approach should have been better they should have consulted more outside of its own walls before they released and announced this uh, upcoming change and when they did so they probably should have explained in a much better way they also say that apple could have introduced more reporting tools in imessage for instance uh, to allow people to easily report child abuse material if they see it or if it's sent to them Um, and really this also comes in the wider context of around the world Uh, there are legislators and regulators including in the uk and the eu uh, that are trying to sort of regulate the online space to better protect children and this type of scanning to detect child sexual abuse material is something that is uh, included or at least being debated as part of some of these regulations as well so in some fronts apple could have been trying to uh, improve what it's been doing in this space because of the political demands but also it's been lagging behind other companies in this space for quite a few years as well so it's really like a difficult situation where balances of privacy are being sort of like traded off with issues of safety and lots of different companies have got lots of different answers to this and there isn't one uh, approach that is going to be sort of the answer for every company I guess with a lot of stuff in the security section, it comes down to that 
heated old debate as you say Matt between privacy and protection and and where you want to draw the line it's the same debate we've been having with you know vaccine passports and things like that it's like to what extent do we want to prioritize people's safety versus their privacy and as you say things that start getting used for one thing could get get uh, their scope could expand and they could be used for other things that are maybe less clear-cut and I think security researchers uh, uh, it's quite brave to you know come out against something that's designed to clamp down on child abuse right so they must feel very very strongly that this is a dangerous slippery slope I'd be interested in your personal perspective like where do you think the line is and is 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 Apple doing the right thing here or do you think that they're they're um the, the slippery slope argument holds holds water yeah, it's it's a good question. And to be honest, I'm not 100% sure on where I sit on this because like, it's something that I've been looking into quite a bit. And we talked recently about a story around sort of end-to-end encryption and the work that WhatsApp was doing to try and detect uh, child sexual abuse material despite having end-to-end encryption. Um, and it seems in a lot of these cases that there is maybe not a really clear-cut technical solution. Apple has tried to move uh, the conversation forward around uh, it's come up with this technical process that is slightly different to uh, how other companies have been doing things. But it does also seem that it has, yeah, maybe sort of like fluffed uh, at least how it's presented this or at least how it has maybe also been uh, sort of like looking at this in maybe sort of too much of a siloed manner in, inside its own walls and I think that there are lots of things that are very true on both sides so the slippery slope argument does hold uh, hold true in a lot of cases we've seen countries and governments uh, use these types of technologies and change these types of technologies in the few in the in the past to be used for different ways that they uh, haven't uh, haven't been intended to but equally on on the other side of it like apple has defended privacy it has uh, it has fought back against the us government um so there are things on both sides which hold true but i think that sort of coming down in the middle is probably where i'm at but i i wouldn't yeah i, d- I don't have a sort of definitive to say this is right or wrong essentially it's complicated and it's really hard um and there should be as much of a i guess sort of consensus democratic decision on these types of things rather than uh rather than one government or one technology company or one entity having a final say on these things but i mean i guess that's why we hopefully live in democracies where these sorts of decisions can be played out in a more constructive manner it's a really complicated and important issue and i'm sure it's one we'll be revisiting on the podcast again in future Now, our second story today is about office tribes. These are groups of people who like to hang out together, work together, and generally be together in a professional setting. You may well be in one yourself, but in a hybrid environment, they can be toxic. Natasha, please tell us more. That's right, Amit. So if you've worked in an office, you'll have noticed them. Those are the people that hang out together at the office Christmas parties, the people who go down the street to get burritos at lunchtime and don't tell anyone else and just get up and leave at the same time. And you're watching them leave and you're wondering where are they all going at the same time? And it's to get burritos because then they come back with the burritos and they sit down and eat them. And the people have in jokes and you don't really understand what they're talking about, but they're all laughing and laughing, having a great time. Maybe these people even run a podcast that you listen to every week and faithfully write into now to get to the point if you imagine there only being those people together in the office every week with no face-to-face interaction with anyone outside of their little group there might be problems so this is what's happening at the moment with hybrid working on a monday one tribe of office workers might be in working with each other in a very specific kind of boisterous collaborative way then on a tuesday 
the office could be filled with completely different people who have nothing in common with each other and maybe don't even talk out loud. And this, this, believe it or not, is a massive cultural problem. Not only do preconceived behaviours become more entrenched and people become more siloed, but it can have a true impact on creativity and very much negate the point of going back to the office at all. Now, apart from giving you an opportunity to air your burrito related grievances <laughs> part of the part of the reason for this article is that we're already seeing people going back to the office and experiencing these issues many companies are moving in their office workers to a hybrid model there's research in the u.s that's found that 70 percent of small businesses of firms from small businesses to giant corporations like google city hspc are starting to ask employees to come into the office regularly but less than a third of those companies have a plan as to how they're actually going to do it most of them are simply asking employees to arrange to go into the office in a sort of ad hoc manner, which means that people are going to gravitate towards people they know and like going on the same days as them. And, and it's going to worsen this cliqueiness, I guess. Yeah, that's that's right. And that's that's the thing that we've been seeing a lot of, even though companies have started investing in technology so you can book your seat and see who else is around. It's natural to want to go in on the same days as other people that you work with and that you like and you want to see face to face when you haven't seen them for a long time. And so you've got the situation where, especially if you're asked to go in on set days of the week, this can become a really big problem because the whole point of collaborating and having these serendipitous moments that business leaders ram down our throats is so important to, to have very much in, in the office and be face to face and experience those it won't actually happen if you're only in the circle of people that you talk to most now this becomes even more exacerbated when you see that the office currently for most people is split due to social distancing and people's preferences so you can't very well turn around and say you know what let's all come in on monday tuesday wednesday and we'll all be in together and that'll be fine often there is a limit on the amount of people that can be in at any time which means that those office dynamics are going to happen whether we like it or not um often the people who are you you're working with most are part of your tribe so the whole dynamic of saying if you see that another person that you work with closely or that you're working with on a project is going to be in going at the same time, that doesn't help matters at all. And for the people who are left out in the cold, if their schedule doesn't match that of the people around them, they're going to be in trouble. So you could be in the scenario where for whatever personal circumstance you want to go in Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, if none of the people that you want to work with are in on those days, it could be very easy for them to all come in on the same same days as you're not in and have conversations that you're not a part of and once you've picked your days it can be hard to change them for the same reasons as I was mentioning before you have your routine you might have personal circumstances but also the limitations of the office are still there a lot of businesses have decided to revamp their offices change kind of open plan spaces and turn them into meeting rooms and you might want to come in but there might not be a desk for you there so these are all the dynamics that Jack Needham our writer was looking at um, as part of this article and yeah they, they do cause a huge headache for companies that want people to collaborate who want people to be part of a, a general group and have good dynamics um, both in and out of the office so i can see why this really matters for employees like you don't want to be when you're at work you want to be around people that you like and you want to be around your friends and especially if you haven't seen them for 18 months you kind of want to be you know reacquainting yourself with colleagues who you've not really seen in person you've only seen over zoom and things like that but you know we've only got to if you're like a cold-hearted, you know, business leader, why should you really care that your employees aren't, you know, hanging out with their mates during the workday? Surely they're going to be more productive and actually do their work rather than, you know, chatting all day. Like, why would business leaders care about this? Yeah, so you're right. I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong 
with going in to the office with people that you like to be with. And, and there is a really good positive impact that can come from that. Uh, but the interesting thing here is, is when you think about the main reasons to go into the office, it's to increase creativity, provoke new ideas, have conversations that are not necessarily in a kind of a strict, you know, meeting setting or on Slack or Microsoft Teams, and also to, you know, boost productivity. So saying, you know, are we more productive? Sometimes having a conversation face to face, uh, in a very quick manner at people's desks versus, you know, starting a Slack channel, having a conversation through there and waiting however long for that person to get back to you. But in in this scenario specifically, having people sometimes in the office and other people not in the office and them never seeing each other can provoke something which our experts called groupthink, which leads to a loss of creativity. You have very boisterous people expressing themselves in person and you have people whose voices are not necessarily ever heard. And that means that all these influence gaps can open up between the office space, people who are in at the same time as bosses or decision makers within the business and their more remote peers. So basically, it's not just that you're going in with your friends. It's also if you happen to choose to go in when your boss is in, you could exert a wider influence on that person than someone that is at home. And we, we know this to be true. We, we've seen this before. And it's one of the main concerns of hybrid working, saying there are people whose voices are not going to be heard, who are going to be on screens and meeting rooms and kind kind of forgotten about when it comes to the chatter after the meeting is over. So anyone who has, you know, health issues who says I don't want to go in when everyone else is in, introverts who don't necessarily express themselves very much or anyone who is likely to work from home because they don't feel safe going into the office or starting their hybrid work are the ones who are first going to be affected. But these kind of gaps will affect everyone according to our experts and it's essential that companies put in place changes so that People who are coming into the office have their voices heard, regardless of whether they're in on the right day or not, and whether they're working remotely or working in the office. I guess in a lot of ways, this isn't really a new phenomenon, right? Like there have been people who have been marginalised by the traditional office because, for instance, they couldn't go out for after work drinks because they had a family to get home to or because they didn't drink because of their religious beliefs or whatever it might be. But I guess to your point, we've seen companies trying to breach this looming divide between the people that go into the office and those who kind of continue to work remotely try and breach that divide by making meeting rooms with big screens or according to your notes hologram style avatars that show people to be the same size as those in the room in real life i'm not sure this is a real thing natasha is this a real thing it is it is i promise you it is so like google um google and i think it's microsoft are coming up and facebook are coming up with sort of it basically screens uh fundamentally but it's it's someone that looks very 3d and they they are the same size as you so you have supposedly the illusion that you're talking to a real person who just happens to be sitting in a booth or in a window. I don't really know, but you can't see their bottom half. So they haven't bothered to sort of recreate your legs or, or like crotch area on the 3D hologram. <laughs> but they, cert- they certainly yeah. have tried to do the sort of mid sure to upper bit. I feel comfortable handing that data over to Condé Nast, to be honest. Um, yeah. <laughs> goes back to that privacy v protection uh, argument we were having earlier. Um, it, it, I mean, that sounds absolutely terrifying, but that aside... You know, I guess the point is that even if you do have a life-size avatar of yourself sitting in a window in your office, it doesn't make up for the spontaneous interactions that you might have outside of a formal meeting, you know, in the kitchen or in the corridor or in the lift. And I guess the question is how the behaviour of these office tribes impacts this already fragmented situation. It makes things far more difficult is the short answer. So the office tribe tends to operate on a very fixed block of time 
of nine to five. It copes with far more friction, you know, commuting, desk-based collaboration and forges relationships face to face. So if you are already part of an office tribe or an office clique, if you want to you know, have a smaller version of it, you're already used to dealing with these people. You already have confidence, you already have rapport. And that just intensifies um, as the more times you go into the office. Uh, the remote tribe, meanwhile, or the tribe that doesn't have a tribe. So the lone wolves or whatever you want to call them, loners, weird- weirdos, left outs, outcasts. <laughs> <laughs> or normal people they they work in in a mode <laughs> sorry <laughs> i know i know i'm just like you know throwing out terms anyway uh, but the, the the people who are not not there while the tribes are there so the remote tribe we'll call them they work in a mode that one of our experts called a time confetti so they can start earlier finish later they work frictionlessly and they take more breaks but their social ties are far weaker because the majority of those ties have been formed online. So it becomes very, very difficult, nigh on impossible, if you're at, on the outs of, of a tribe to then get in if you're not in that group with them in the office. Um, so so that, that becomes really, really difficult for people. And, and, you know, they said to us, you know, one casualty might be the office romance. People keep on banging on about the office romance. I don't know why that's a thing. But anyway, uh, the the point is tribalism and distrust of everyone that's not in the group can cause very, very serious damage. So you no know romance, no trust, no nothing. If you're not in the tribe, you're out in the cold. And But it also impacts people's willingness to collaborate with other people. So you're more likely, if you're within a group of people that you like, to trust another person to work with you on a project um, than you are someone outside. And that becomes a vicious cycle where you don't necessarily get new voices or new perspectives in a project, and therefore the project is not as good. And that's why the ability to network both in digital and physical space is is super important and it's a skill that everyone needs in a hybrid workplace. Time confetti sounds a lot more fun than it actually is. It sounds like party and fun and games when really it's like taking a two hour lunch to go to the dentist or something like that, isn't it? It's like, you know, (laughs) it's not quite, it's not all fun and games. Um, I think a lot of the discourse around this has been sort of, you know, oh, you need to go into the office for career reasons because otherwise you'll get overlooked and things like that. And I guess the big fear is that, you know, we've been given this chance to, and a lot of people have written things along these lines, we've been given this chance to completely reinvent the world of work and seize the opportunity to create a economy that fits closer to our needs and like gives us the lives that we want to live. But the big fear and the way things seem to be going is that we're just going back to a world where presenteeism that was there before the pandemic is going to exist in a hybrid environment, but with much higher stakes. So you may well want to work from home, but you're going to have to go in because your boss is in and you're worried that if you don't go in, you're not going to get promoted. And actually, you may well be more productive and more creative at home, but that doesn't matter because if you don't go into the office, then you might just get overlooked and be off in your remote tribe, you know, covered in time confetti while your peers you know, <laughs> advance in their careers yeah that's right and the thing is is that it does become a sort of weird rat race right if you figure out that your boss is going to be in monday wednesday friday and there's a limited amount of spaces there and you think that this is the type of person that could be you know more apt to noticing you and, and there might be more opportunities to, to be promoted if you're there then you're going to have a race of people trying to go i want to you know book up all those slots i'll book them you know until infinity and you're not you're not going to be able to book anything else so that there, there is a huge problem with that and but the divides are more about perception than about reality so that's where things become a bit difficult where you you don't know if it's going to matter if you're there or not there but you think what if it does though (laughs) 
<laughs> so you start making decisions which are potentially going to be detrimental to you going into the office because you think that the decision makers that will determine your future career will be sat there next to you they could change their schedules and then <laughs> and then what what have you done you know you could be sat next to a completely different cohort of people that you you don't know that know each other that won't talk to you so it, it is a bit of a risk here but it, the interesting thing that dynamic that you talked about Amit um, that, that's changed very much during the pandemic is that you know you, you have people who think that if they do a good job and they just get that work-life balance a bit better especially as now things are opening up and you're able to you know go back to doing hobbies and having a bit of a life that that you know your commitment to your job will be enough if you do it within work hours but actually it is still the case according to our experts that very few managers see it that way which is which is very very sad to hear actually because you'd think that our minds would have opened up um during this time but but you do need to kind of change the perception of of the invisible workforce because if that doesn't happen, it will be a situation where if you're not in, when your boss is in, you're not going to get promoted. No one's going to notice that you're there. No one's going to notice that you're in early and working late. No one's going to care about your time confettis. It doesn't matter what you do. You'll just be forgotten about. And that's that's the big problem that, that our experts were pointing out, saying that, you know, if senior members in organisations don't act as role models and normalise remote working in a viable and visible way, then it's going to be very difficult to maintain communication and interaction and make people feel like they are just as valued, whether they coincide with you in the office, whether they coincide with the other office tribes in the office or, or not. And that's that's the big tricky thing that's going on right now. You paint a really, really grim picture of people, oh, you know, sorry. getting up at the crack of dawn to try and get a desk near the boss, like they're like, you know, trying to get Glastonbury tickets, like refreshing the page, like gotta get a desk near the boss, otherwise I'm not going to get promoted, like you know, all this kind of stuff. It's just really, really bleak. Um, what should companies do to try and prevent this? Should they just tell everyone that they have to be in the office on specific days so that it's shared out more evenly? Should they say everyone has to go back or no one has to go back or like, you know, what's the solution here? Yeah, first of all, PSA, if you are doing that and like trying to refresh the page and trying to, you know, orchestrate so you're next to your boss, just don't, like nothing can be worth that, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> like, nothing in this world can be worth that amount of effort. Um, you know, just, just ask your boss when they're going to be in and, you know, be a bit casual about it. But but yeah, you're you're right. It is really difficult to, to figure out how to sort out this problem, right? Um, you can't just go ahead and say, yes, everyone must come in on the same day. We must all be equal. We must all be in uh, because that, that doesn't work, logistically speaking. I think that the main thing that has changed over the last year is that employers have realised we can, as a cohort of workforce, can be relied upon to do our jobs really, really well wherever we happen to be. And it is very much... Um, infantilizing i suppose your grown-up workforce to assume that if they're not in the office together and they're not all together at all times that they're just going to you know go off on one and not have any level of productivity or creativity that's that's something that i hope um and i believe you know companies have, have kind of reflected upon and realized that that's that's not going to be the case but what they can do is democratize the access to the workspace and prompt people to work closer with people that they might not have worked with before especially when when it's when it makes sense so employers can't be you know secretive about their inner workings they need to be transparent about who's in the office at what time you know the workflow and, and what is expected of people 
And, you know, calendars, very important to be able to access other people's calendars so you can see where they're going to be, so you can coincide with them if you need to, so you make sure you have a bit of a mix yourself. But it does rely on companies being open with that data, and a lot of them are not, uh, which is a shame. Uh, so often you will try and book a desk, but you can't necessarily see who else is there. You don't really know, beside the people in your immediate team, whether anyone's going to be in or not. And that can be really problematic if the kind of ideas that you get... I mean, look, in my personal case, some ideas I've got from, you know, the cleaners at Condé Nast. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it can be such a variety of different people. People at GQ, people at Vogue. You meet them, you know, in the canteen. You meet them out in the street. It's, it can be such a random kind of different mix of people that it's often really impossible to know whether you're going to ever coincide with them again unless that data is available and so our experts have basically said that coordination is a very very important part to hybrid working so you can't tell people what to do but you need to give them the options to at least have a chance of not siloing themselves completely and succeeding I actually really, really disagree with you on that last point. Ooh, like, controversial. Well, I just think, I just think if you want like different perspectives, forcing everyone to live in the same city and come to the same office and interact with the same people every single day is like a really silly way of doing it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Especially for for jobs like ours, where it's all about ideas and coming up with ideas and brushing up against new things and talking to different people. Surely, if we all lived in different countries around Europe, that would be much, much better. Like, I'm sure when Matt Reynolds was in Italy for a while, he came up with way more ideas than he would have come up with if he'd just been going into coming into the office and going back into the office and just seeing us every day. So I think remote working offers this opportunity to actually broaden the horizons of the people that work for you rather than, oh, well, I'm just going to go into this office building that looks the same as every other office building I've ever worked at and see the same people every day and also i don't know this whole like water cooler thing yeah like it's great chatting to people in the kitchen but have you ever come up with a good idea in the kitchen yes. and then like gone away <laughs> yes, I yeah i'm on a yeah kitchen office kitchen fiend really i just was lurk it around why there office kitchens so people. bad is that the idea <laughs> <laughs> i live there i live there around it no I, I agree with you actually um i think you're, you're right about remote working it, it makes sense and it doesn't make sense to go back to the way we were and and actually there are jobs where i don't feel like you having an office is necessarily the most important thing at all um, unless you're using it as a base to go meet other people and do other things. But within the sort of scheme of hybrid working, that's the best option, I think. You know, if you have to go into the office, if you're being told you must go into the office two, three days a week, it's better to try to, you know, talk and meet as many different people as possible um, and not worry so much if you can, if you have that luxury about whether your boss sees you or not. That is the best scenario here, really, where you try to kind of maximise the time that you might have to coincide with other people and have conversations with them. Yeah, I think one of the frustrating things from from my perspective is that we've all shown over the last 18 months that we can be productive and can work really well remotely. And to now be told, oh, you have to go in, otherwise you're not going to be productive or be creative, is, it, it does feel a bit infantilising to your point. Um be really interesting to hear what listeners think. Do you feel left out of every hybrid office tribe? Do you have a tribe of your own? Do you think the return to the workplace should be regimented? Should we all be working from home forever? Let us know on podcast at wired.co.uk. We love to get your feedback. And that's about all we've got time for this week. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Wired UK podcast. I've been Emma Katwala and goodbye. Bye. 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 